Got back late last night from our men's Sabbath retreat, so a lot of our men are there Sabbathing, uh, getting their rest in. So my wife was like, did you rest really hard? And I said, well, my arm is sore from glow-in-the-dark uh, dodgeball on Friday night. Uh, my back hurts from flag football yesterday because I forgot that I'm 40 and I tried to go for a deep pass. Um, the pickup basketball games, I took an elbow in the nose, thought I broke my nose, yeah, at one point. And so I'm feeling good today, feeling refreshed, Sabbath's ready to go. Uh, slept really good, you know, like you do uh, when you're on retreat. It was a great time. I also want to say this. If your husband uh, went on that retreat to all the spouses in the room, thank you for investing in them. It really was a fantastic time. Thank you for, I know when, when you have to leave town and leave kids and, and wife, that's hard. Women, your Sabbath retreat is coming up in November. So um, please go to that. Sign up. It's an incredible time where uh, church really does become family, so we want you to be a part of that. And honestly, you don't have to do all of the activities I did. I don't know why, but you can just take a nap if you want to, whatever you want to do. <laughs> uh, let me also remind you, this Thursday night is our God and Sexuality Forum right here from 7 to 9 p.m. in this room. Um, there's no child care for this event. You can also, if you go on cc.guide, you can submit all of your questions. We've had so many amazing questions come in. Um, that's completely uh, anonymous, the way it's set up, so nobody will know it's your question if there's something that you want clarity on, um, we're going to break that kind of forum up into four parts. It'll be more of a living room couch set up here. Our good friend Jonathan over here will be uh, moderating that for us Thursday night. We'll have some different people coming up uh, to speak. Uh, maybe you're curious about things. Maybe you're struggling through things. But let me tell you, if nothing else, creating loving, honoring places that have hard conversations around topics is something that we have to do. And we have to model to the world what it looks like to love each other well, even when we may disagree on some non-essential matters. Amen? And so we're going to do that well uh, this Thursday if you want to be a part of that. Uh, several years ago, there was a group of teenage boys uh, in Oregon that were playing around kind of on this mountainside with some fireworks. And one of the 15-year-old boys took one of the fireworks and shot it down into like this ravine area below. Didn't think much of it. Until a few minutes later, the boys look down and they see fire coming from this ravine. Little did they know that that evening, they had started the Eagle Creek Fire, which would take fi firefighters months to put out, burn thousands of acres, hundreds of homes. Uh, it burned the, an area larger than Washington, D.C. When it was all said and done, a 15-year-old boy, the courts ordered him to repay restitution and damages over $36 million dollars for shooting a firework down into a ravine. How many know fire is a powerful tool, right? Used in the right context brings incredible life and in the wrong context can bring incredible de devastation. Many of us, as we talked about last week, we already know that that's the case with our sexuality. There's few things that can bring as much joy and also as much pain and devastation as sexuality and sex in the wrong context. Last week was part one, which was beauty. If you weren't here for part one, it pains my soul that you only have to listen to part two in brokenness without hearing part one. So please go back and hear the beauty of our sexuality and how it points us to God. We talked about a secular story and a shame story and a sacred story, that God is inviting us into this sacred story. It's not just about saying no, it's about saying yes to him, his design, and what he has for us that our desires can actually point us to Jesus. They can point us to Christ and the fulfillment of all things. That sex is created as this gift that God has given us to be used in the covenant of marriage, to enjoy one another, to procreate, and to remember God's story of love. Again, incredible devastation, 
incredible beauty. This week, we're going to lean into the brokenness side. And so before we lean into it, I'm going to go back to our story. The story in Genesis gives us context for why we're here, what we're doing. Genesis 1 and 2, we're experiencing this harmony and relationship with God and each other. It's beautiful, unhindered, no fellowship disconnected. Then we know Genesis 3 is when sin and death enters the equation, and sin and death makes everything unravel. Now we long to reconnect with God because we don't feel that connection with him like we did. Now we long to reconnect with each other because there's a disconnect between our relationship. In fact, I said this last week, sexuality, and a lot of it is our longing to reconnect as we did in the garden, right? And I know me and you weren't in the garden, but humanity was. And it was perfect, and it was unhindered. And our sexuality is that desire to reconnect because we know from Genesis 3, the unraveling effects of sin is on our relationship with God, others, our sexuality, and the world around us is now filled with sin and brokenness. That's a reality. Now we feel this disconnection. So in the few minutes that we have this morning, number one, I'm gonna talk about the problem, the effects of sin on our sexuality, and then I'm gonna briefly get into our response as the people of God. I'm not gonna have time to really delve into completely our response, and so Thursday night we're gonna pick that up as well. The devastating effects of sin are seen immediately after Genesis 3, right? It's brother against brother, Cain and Abel. It's murder. In Genesis 6, you remember the Noah story? I mean, God's looking around and the wickedness of mankind had grown so prevalent, he's trying to find anybody who is righteous. I mean, you talk about unraveling, this thing went quick because that's what sin does, doesn't it? Then you get this Tower of Babel story where pride and rebellion, where God says, I want you to go throughout the earth and multiply and be fruitful. And what do they do? Nope, we're all gonna get together and try to build this tower up to God. A form of pride and rebellion against him. The devastating effects of sin. As you can imagine, God's beautiful design for our sexuality is now broken, it's perverted, it's warped. What I'm gonna do this morning is I'm gonna make a connection between where we're at today in our secular society and the first century, the Roman culture, because there's a lot of connections to be made. Everybody thinks that we're, all we, we're in this new place that's never been before, but a lot of times we just repeat old patterns and cycles. If you were here last week, I defined secularism as this. Secularism disciples a man to learn to live without God. That is what our society is currently moving towards. We've been moving that direction for some time. It's a way of constructing meaning and significance without any reference to divine, anything, any reference to transcendence or boundaries or authorities. We wanna remove all of those and we wanna walk in our own way. In a secular society, we remove God from the center, we replace it with ourselves. Secularism sees the world as, as almost a blank canvas. Our sexuality is a blank canvas to be explored and we define it as we choose. Secularism eventually crashes in on itself because without certain boundaries and parameters for sexuality, it takes us to places that we never dreamed. It takes us to places of absurdity and perversion and places where it actually falls apart. And let me tell you, if you study human history, you see that that's happened on numerous occasions. But secularism, I want you to hear this part, it's subtle. It slowly disciples us and creeps into our lives, affecting our theology, our worldview, how we see certain things. And so what happens is the people of God, if they're not being discipled by the ways of Jesus, then we allow secularism to creep in and we don't even know that it's discipling us. But we start saying things and doing things, especially in our sexuality, that look nothing like Jesus, that aren't confirmed in scripture, but we just kind of wrap it in this context if I think Jesus would approve. 
right? Secularism, it's, it's a slow creep into our life. It doesn't force us to engage in sexual promiscuity. It changes the story that we believe about God, ourselves, and sexuality. And we know this, secularism is openly promoted now in all major academic institutions, media, schools, Hollywoods, private corporations, law, it's everywhere. It is now the norm, which means this, people of God, if you're not willing to swim upstream in regards to sexuality, guess what? You will just absolutely go with the flow of society. You are now living in a place where if you have a God-honoring sexuality in your life, it is no longer cool, it's no longer popular, it no longer coincides with the culture that you're living in, right? So now you have to choose. Not always in our life did we have to choose. How many know it's easy when culture and just kind of a God-honoring sexuality are running parallel? They're not running parallel at all right now, which forces us to choose what are we gonna do? We're gonna be discipled by the world in this secularism or are we gonna regain a God-honoring ethic and story? What's an example of this? We're now having young children decide they wanna change genders and parents who are celebrating that and their kids who are six, seven, and eight years old. That's called absurdity. Not because young people don't struggle with gender issues, it's because allowing a six, seven, and eight-year-old to try to decide a major life identity issue, right, like that is absurd. So when a young child is struggling with issues of sexuality, how do we meet them? We meet them with grace and compassion and love and care. But a society says if you're gonna do that, that means you have to confirm how they feel because how they feel overrides everything else about them, including their biology. That's not a God-honoring biblical sexual ethic. See, the secular story is this, gender is fluid, right? If you, if you didn't know this, most young people today junior high, high school, college, everybody, gender is fluid. Biology matters very little. We determine what is good and true for us. If you feel a disconnect in some of these things, then you follow your feeling, you don't follow your biology. In fact, secularism, what it does to the body is it takes this high view that the, that the, uh, the church is called to in the body and it lowers it to a place where like your body really doesn't decipher anything other than how you feel. It's where we're at. And the church is in danger of losing their story. It's being co-opted co by a secular world. And I could go into all these, and I don't have time to do all this, but I mean, we, could, we could address pornography, right? We have so many people within the church that are struggling with that, and I'm not here to shame you or condemn you if that's your struggle, but I am saying this, in the church, we have to be honest about it, we have to address it, and we can't normalize that pornography is just a thing that, some, that people struggle with, amen? You can amen me this morning, that's okay. I know it's a deep topic. I talk about sex, people are like, I'm not even gonna shake my head. I'm gonna stand here like this. <laughs> Some of you, you'd be amening me if I said that on a normal Sunday, right? <laughs> we have to address it. We gotta talk about it, it's the elephant in the room, right? We have to uncover that and be like, okay, yes, this is happening in the church, you're not immune from it, but how do we walk towards freedom together? Cohabitation. In the church today, people are like, you gotta kick the tires before you drive the car, right? It's what the world tells you to do. It's in fact, the world will tell you it's stupid not to see if you're sexually compatible before marriage. And so people nowadays, it's like even in the church, they come in and that's just the norm, that's just what we do. Divorce, I would love to tell you that we're just knocking it out of the park in our marriages, but in the church, our divorce rate is slightly lower than the rest of the world's. Yay, we're winning, aren't we? You know, I hate to be pessimistic this morning. <laughs> Abortion, right? I see so many people, Christians, 
In a secular society, what we've done is your rights are greater than the human life. And so we in the church, we've, we've been co-opted. That story has so gotten into us that now that my rights over, over, supersede the life of an unborn child. Let me tell you, when you became a follower of Jesus, you laid down a lot of rights. Your rights are not primary. In fact, you write, they lay down rights all the time for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You lay down your life and, and your, you, who you are for other people. That's what God has called us to. Homosexuality, transgenderism, because we're not being discipled by scripture, we're letting the world disciple us in regards to our sexuality. What are we gonna do? First century Roman world, sexual perversion was everywhere. The Apostle Paul lived in a time when sex was used for power, it was used for exploitation, it was used for entertainment purposes. Sex was just sex. They had normalized perverse and abusive practices around sex. And in fact, if you were in the first century and you, had one, you were a woman, you had no rights. And if something happened to you sexually, people just looked the other way because you're a woman. I mean, that was norm. It had been normalized in the culture. You know a society has lost its way when perversion, perversion is now normalized. That's what Paul is experiencing. So read almost every letter that Paul writes. There's, there's almost every letter, there's a section on sexuality where Paul is gonna be like, okay, there's a lot of things we could talk about. You wanna be God's holy people set apart to live in God's kingdom? You better do different things with your body than the rest of the world. Your sexuality matters. In fact, you're gonna be holy. Holy means to be set apart for a purpose. And if you're God's people, you gotta be holy and set apart. Or then you have to ask yourself, am I really God's people if I'm not being set apart? First Thessalonians 4, verse three. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, Paul says that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Why would Paul say this unless the church is struggling with it? Like they've come to Christ, they've been baptized in water, but now I'm like trying to figure out does my sexuality really need to change and Paul's helping him with this process of sanctification that's difficult. Verse five, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not have God or know God, and that, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, if anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul's trying to change this understanding and dynamic because they're living as pagans. And it's like, oh, you're going you to have to look different if you're my people. The book of Ephesians, the city of Ephesus, full of godless sexuality. Paul would say in Ephesians 5, he would even go as far to say, hey, there, among you, the people of God, there should even be a hint of sexual morality. This sounds a lot like Jesus when he's like, yeah, you don't commit adultery, but you lust in your heart, so you might as well be doing that. Like Paul's getting to the heart, not, not even a hint. Like you remove that. You fight for your freedom. You've got to choose a God-honoring ethic in your sexuality. In the city of Ephesus, it, it's, it was a weird city because they had temples and gods and goddesses everywhere. In the middle of the city of, of Ephesus was a temple to the gar, goddess Artem, uh, Artemis. And Artemis was actually this woman who had breasts all over the front of her. And there was a statue of her in the middle of the city. And what would happen is these cultic temple prostitutes would go into the temple of Artemis and they would ask for the spirit of Artemis to be deposited inside of them. Then the, the cultic prostitutes would go and lay on the front steps of the temple and people would come sleep with them so that the spirit of Artemis that was in the prostitute would be passed on to the person sleeping with him. 
pretty convenient setup, isn't it? You know, <laughs> works out well whenever your religion just conforms to whatever you are you want to do. This was normal. This was every day. This is you walking to work and you're like, oh, the temple prostitutes are out early this morning. You know, this is just what you do. This is life. It's okay to laugh, guys. It's all right. <laughs> Some of you are like, <laughs> it's all right. Chill out. For them, sex was not a part of some bigger design. Just something you did for pleasure, power. It was cheap, it was dirty, it was driven by lust. So imagine this with me for a second. Paul and the church roll up into a city and they completely preach a message that changes the paradigm of the culture around them. And they take this idea of sex and the body and they've elevated it to something of value and worth and sacredness and nobody had even ever heard this. You can imagine how this message is received. Some people are like, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by this. Some people are like, you're idiots. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And, and, and what, are you, what are you talking about, Paul? It's just sex. To which Paul would reply, he's like, actually, it's more than that because you were created with a soul. And so your body doesn't just physically attach to somebody. You have a soul connection with them. What, what is Paul doing this whole time? And here's what I want to, I really want to tell the rest of the world this. A God-honoring biblical ethic of sexuality takes your body and who you are and elevates you to a place of such honor and dignity that the world says you don't matter. And God says you do. And they would be like, Paul, it's just your body. You do with your body, whatever you want to do with your body. And Paul said, actually, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. He uses that word temple. I think there's a reason he uses the word temple, because you're sleeping at the temple with whoever you want. But your body is a temple because the Holy Spirit, God himself, resides in you. So what you do with this, and then Paul goes on. You remember that passage? He says, would you take your temple and would you unite God's temple with the prostitute? No, because they don't coincide. You're set apart and holy. They don't care what they do with your body. You've got to be different. You've got to live differently. It's got to look different for you. And Paul's calling the church to this radical sexual ethic. I mean, there's something that we can learn today from this because there's similarities. There's so many similarities between the world that we're living in and what God calls us to. Paul in Romans chapter one, Romans one is the anti-creation story. If God is creating and it's good in Romans one and two, in Romans one, what Paul is saying is the world is falling apart and unraveling because of the effects of sin and rebellion against God. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, surrounded by sexual practices outside God's design. Remember the Roman culture in the first century, it was a Hellenistic Greek culture. And in Hellenism, your body mattered very little. There was this dualism where your spirit was elevated, but your body mattered little. And so people did whatever they wanted to do. It was just complete freedom in regards to sexuality. And, and Paul's living in this world. He's building the church in this world that doesn't value any of these things. Same-sex practices had been normalized, cultic prostitution was normalized, sexual perversion had been normalized. And Paul begins to paint this picture in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one is a difficult passage, I'm gonna be honest with you. And in the gay community, they call this like one of those hammer passages because a lot of Christians wanna take this passage and beat people over the head with it. That's not what we're doing. What we are doing is we wanna uncover the truth of what Paul is getting into in a very difficult passage in Romans chapter one. 
He's saying that people have no bearing. There's no foundation, there's no direction. Imagine that you are adrift at sea and you don't have an anchor and so you're just literally going wherever the wind blows you. He says, that's what society is doing. That's what the culture is doing right now. They've rejected God, who he is, his truth. And it was a deliberate ignorance. It's one thing if you don't know any better, but Paul's saying it's a deliberate ignorance because God has revealed himself through the world and nature. They've seen who God is and they're like, nope, I'm gonna choose this way. It's a deliberate ignorance. And if we learn something about God, it's this. How many know God is not indifferent to sin? Do you know that? You know why God's not indifferent to sin? Because he loves you and I so passionately. And even in this passage, it says the wrath of God is being poured out on mankind. How many know nobody likes to hear the word wrath? Because wrath is like this picture of God, like unbridled rage and like uncontrollable, like I'm just going everywhere and doing everything. It's like lightning bolts falling from heaven. That is not how God operates. In fact, what Paul is saying is the wrath that God's pouring out on mankind is not even that God is necessarily doing something to them. It's that they've chosen the way of sin and rebellion and death, and that always leads to destruction. So it's almost like Paul is saying, they've chosen this path, and now they will reap the fruits of destruction because of the life that they've chosen is what he's getting to here. Again, difficult passage. Romans chapter one, verse 21, let's pick it up here. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I want you to say this word with me, and exchanged. It's not on the screen. So you don't even know, you didn't know it was coming up. <laughs> I set you up and you didn't know it was there. You know you have Romans 1 memorized. Come on. <laughs> and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to make, made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. There it is. They exchanged. I want to pick up on that. I think that's important to note. If you're taking notes and following along, when we reject who God is, we inevitably create a God that looks like us. That's what we do. If I reject the image of God, the picture of God, God's standard, God's kingdom, I will recreate God to look like me, my desires, my wants, what I wanna do. This is the cultural secularism of today. And verse 23 is actually undoes the created order. This is what sin does. Humans are uniquely made in the image of God to reflect God to the world. That is the calling of the church. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room, you are called to be a reflection of the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. But here's what humanity has done. They have exchanged the truth of who God is and the clear picture of who he is for a lie. And they've accepted it as normal. And that's what they're living out. Paul says they've exchanged it. Verse 24, it gets more difficult. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There it is again. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do, not, so they do what ought not to be done, continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, this picture that we get, they exchange the truth for a lie. As a result of them exchanging truth for a lie, God gave them over to another exchange, natural relations for unnatural ones. And I think it's important that we know that it says God gave them over. Here's what happens all throughout scripture is that when people persist in rebellion to God, what God does is says, if you wanna persist and you want that, I will give you over to that way. It's gonna lead to destruction and I'll warn you and I'll do everything I can to bring you out of it. But if you're gonna persist in it, I'll give you over to what you ultimately want. I've quoted John Mark Comer several times. This book is in our lobby, it's called Live No Lies. How do we normalize lies in our culture? Number one, it starts with a deceptive idea from the enemy. It always starts. The enemy has no power over you. What the enemy has is deceptive ideas and lies, and he's very good at using them. It's a deceptive idea that, number two, plays to the disordered desires of our flesh. How many know every desire you have is not from God? Because we're sinful. And so these lies plays to the disordered desires of our heart, the things that maybe inwardly we want, but don't align with God and his kingdom. And then what happens, number three, is they're normalized in a sinful society. And let me tell you, when you get a lie that matches your desire, that's normalized in a sinful society, it creates a stronghold where truth is no longer present, where we've believed a lie about who God is and what he believes. And Paul's saying that society has persisted in rebellion against God with their sexuality. Paul calls it unnatural. He calls it indecent. He calls it a perversion. We get the longest passage in the entire New Testament that addresses homosexuality right right, right here, where Paul says it's against God's nature and created order. You want to talk about something that's not popular to talk about? If Genesis 1 and 2, if it is... A picture of God's pursuit of us within a heterosexual marriage and covenant between two people. Romans chapter one shows a homosexual union between two people as as man's rebellion against God. That's what Paul is talking about right here. Now, please hear my heart because two things that I wanna be really, really open about here at City Church is we're gonna be very clear about God's word because too many churches today, I'd rather not talk about it because it's gonna open a can of worms. You can't do that. We wanna be very clear, but we also wanna be very loving and create safe places for people. Let me also say this, that Paul goes beyond just talking about sexual immorality and he goes on and he, he has a long list at the end of Romans chapter one where he talks about all kinds of things, what, what, all kinds of lists like envy and deceit and gossip and arrogance and boastfulness and greed. So those individuals who like to pick on areas of sexuality, but then they like to ignore the issues in their own heart, you can't do that in this passage, right? You got to be willing to deal with your own issue. Those people who want to look on people in the church and are like, oh, you struggle with sexuality? Maybe you should go over here while the rest of us lead the church. Nope, you don't get to do that either, right? Because he's addressing when sin is is rampant in our lives, it it comes out in a lot of ways. It, It disorders a lot of things in our hearts. Two ways that we can misunderstand or ignore Paul's points here. Number one, some churches, to appear culturally relevant and to seem loving and welcoming to LGBTQ+, to gay queer people, will downplay the clear teaching of Scripture on homosexuality. That is happening everywhere right now. And in this desire to, cl- to be culturally relevant, 
Now, Thursday night, we may get into this topic, but there's a whole debate right now in Romans chapter one that Paul was not talking about like licentious, um, he wasn't talking about committed monogamous homosexual relationships. He was just talking about people who were sleeping around in homosexual relationships. That is not consistent with this. Monogamous homosexual relationships were absolutely prevalent in the first century. Paul would have known that. He would have been addressing that along with everything else in this passage. The second way we can misunderstand and ignore this point is that other churches will take what the Bible says on homosexuality and in their own self-righteousness make that a sin above all other sins. Are you with me? Because you don't get it. Maybe it's not your struggle, right? And if it's not my struggle, then I don't know anybody who struggles with it. And so culture and politics have told me that it's us versus them. And so to, to, to be us versus them, I've got to take a stand and I've got a, a standard of truth. And I'm just going to go around telling everybody what my truth is. And you don't realize the people around you who are struggling with issues of sexuality see your truth as condemnation and judgment on them, right? Instead of being in that place where you love people well and you listen and you create spaces for people in your life who don't look like you and believe the same things you and are struggling through this. That's what I hate about politics and I, I go on this rant all the time and we need good politicians, we need to be engaged in it, but politics, it doesn't make people bearers of the image of God, it makes them a topic, right? When we're fighting against transgenderism, we're not fighting against people who are struggling Right? What we want to do is uphold a standard of truth while loving people well who are wrestling through issues of sexuality. That wasn't in my notes. All right, here we go. <laughs> Wrap it up. The problem is the effects of sin in our sexuality when we turn away. In fact, here's how I kind of see this in my head that Paul's painting this picture. He's like, you have this picture and image of God you're going towards and you just shifted away from him. I think of it like you're on the sea and you're, you're sailing and how many know you just get a few degrees off course and you kind of turn your boat in the wrong direction, but you go that way for days and weeks and months. After days, weeks, and months, how far are you from your desired destination? I can't do the math. Yeah, long way. You're a long way. I think that's what Paul's saying society has done. They've exchanged it. They've turned their face from God. So now they've gotten to a point where it's so far from God's story for them. And let me tell you, God's story for your sexuality, as much as what I just preached may sound restrictive and unloving, it leads to life and freedom in his kingdom. But you have to believe it by faith. So what's our response this morning as the people of God? When a generation turns away from God and his design, it is the next generation's responsibility to restore it. When a generation turns its face away from God's design, when they exchange the truth for a light, it is the next generation's responsibility to uphold a biblical God-honoring ethic in that area. And God always does that in every generation. Let me tell you, in Romans chapter one, in the Roman culture of the first century, society began to like deteriorate because that's what secularism does. When you choose your own way, it deteriorates. And God raised up a people, a God-honoring church that said, you know what? We're gonna live differently. We're gonna do this differently. We're gonna be a remnant to restore God's design. Let me tell you what I'm praying for, City Church. I'm praying for a group of young people, junior high, middle schoolers, high schoolers, who will stand in the midst of cultural relativism and all these things the world was saying, and they say, you know what? We will passionately pursue Jesus. 
and I will lay down my life because how many know following Jesus means taking up your cross? And it means surrendering and submitting your ways before God. And I'm praying there's another generation coming up that will in love and truth lead the way, amen? We need that now more than ever before. I fully realize that there's so many cultural disciples in the church, many people will hear this biblical teaching on sexuality and they will simply reject it. I can't believe it because I've been so discipled by the world, everything you're saying seems so foreign. How do we move forward as the people of God? Really quickly, number one, we must be willing to stand in the face of cultural secularism with a vision of God's design for our sexuality. There are a lot of followers of Jesus who are standing up and they're preaching and railing against what they're against, but they don't have a better vision. You can't just preach about what you're against without giving the world a better vision for God's design and how it's good. Amen? This is the beauty part. If you missed that sermon last week, please listen to it. It's really important. It's not just saying no. You're saying yes to something that's far superior than you following your desires urges. Number two, we must be God's holy people, living in God's design for our sexuality. We can't just preach it, we can't just talk about it. We have to live it by faith, which means there's a part of my sexuality that I will always have to surrender. Are you with me? Everybody has to surrender part of that. You're like, I'll just get married, then I can, no, that, you still have to surrender your sexuality. You surrender yourself daily. You still have to practice self-control. You have to learn how to honor another person and communicate. Number three, we must continue to love well with both grace and truth, leading people into the freedom of life of Christ. Scott McKnight in his book, Fellowship of Difference, we had this book in the lobby in our last sermon series. He says, there's confusion in our world and in the church what it means to really love people well. Love does not say, I will love you if you conform to my wants, right? Matt Chandler had a really good message last week where he says, kindness does not make you complicit. People in the church think that if I'm kind to somebody or loving, then that's like me putting the stamp of approval on their life. No, you are called to love people well and be kind, amen? That doesn't make you complicit in their sin. I always say this, you don't lay down the fruit of the spirit to stand for truth. Love does not use the truth as a hammer to batter people with shame, condemnation, or judgment. It's pointing people towards life. Love is not coercive. Love is not tolerance. If you're being discipled by the world, the world screams tolerance. But the irony is they're probably the most intolerant people I know. Tolerance is not, yeah, I'm with you as long as you believe what I believe. Tolerance is, I will meet you in this space even if we disagree and I'll love you. Amen? That's what we're called to. We're called to do that. Love is not tolerance, it's not being passive. Love does not say it's fine for you to choose whatever you feel is best for you, that's not love. Scott McKnight goes on, he says, love is a rugged commitment to someone, which involves presence, advocacy, and companionship over time as we walk towards the kingdom of God which means growing in holiness and love and righteousness together. Thursday night, two people in our church are gonna share their story, their struggle. We're gonna wrestle through together what it means to create really safe places for people who are struggling through sexuality to be loved. 
and we are committed to that here at City Church. You're my holy people. You display this to the world through your sexuality, by the way you live. You align yourselves to the kingdom. You struggle well. You struggle in community. You struggle by attaching yourself to scripture and the word of God. If you would this morning, City Church, stand to your feet with me this morning as we're gonna wrap this up. Two messages I've preached over the last two weeks, but really just one message in two parts. Beauty, beauty. Our sexuality points us to him, to God's design. And in God's design, it's beautiful. Not just saying no, it's saying yes to him and his way. But then also brokenness. The world is broken because of sin, which includes our sexuality. And we restore it by laying down our lives. So here's what I want you to do this morning, as we always do, if you just close your eyes where you're at, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Because of brokenness of sin and our sexuality, there's gonna be things that we have to surrender. Maybe things that we've always grown up believing maybe things that we've assumed, maybe things that culture has taught us, maybe about our own struggle. And because of the brokenness of sin, we willingly submit and surrender our desires before God. God, they're yours. My identity is first and foremost found in you. Father, I choose to walk in your holiness and way because I truly believe it leads to life. And I say today that I am not God and you are. God, I desire to honor you and glorify you above all else. God, I don't care if other people see it as unpopular or label me other things. I wanna walk in your truth as a person living in the kingdom of God. Father, we confess those things today as your people. Help us in wisdom navigate a difficult world. Help us with discernment and understanding, navigate the complexity of wrestling well with our sexuality. We don't claim to have it all figured out, so we humbly submit ourselves to you, Father, and ask that you would lead us in all things, we pray. Amen, amen. If you would this morning, just prepare yourself to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. table liturgy on the screen here. Let's say this together. For the weary, the table is our rest. For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided and disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again.
As always, this table is representative of what brings us together as one. We're united in our passion and our love for Jesus and the work of the gospel. So many things can divide us, right? So many opinions and topics can rip us apart as the church, but we always come back to the table because Jesus is sufficient to save us, to set us free. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. It was a gift he gave to them. This is my body. Every time you do this, every time you gather and you remember me, you're gonna remember what I did for you, that I was beaten and bruised and broken for your wholeness. And then Jesus would take the cup of suffering, that he would take our suffering and he would take our place so that one day when we stand before the creator of the universe, God does not see our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus. Let me tell you, if you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, you're invited to come and take Jesus today as Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, if you're struggling with your sexuality today, but you desire and you hunger for more of God and more of Jesus, you're invited with us today to come and take him and allow him to do a transformative work in your heart and my heart and all of our hearts. I'm gonna invite our prayer and communion team to come, prepare the elements. That's one more time, just prepare our hearts to receive today as the family of God. Father, we thank you for the body and blood. We thank you for what it represents. We thank you that this is a holy space that we create every week to encounter you, to meet you. God, we ask for you to change us and shape us, mold us, Father. If somebody came in this morning heavy burdened, got overwhelmed with the things of life, would you meet us at the table? God, as we feel the body and the blood, as we taste it, Father, that there's something that would happen deep inside of us as we remember what you've done, would you transform us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you're ready to partake, you can step out to the right of your section, come forward, they'll give you the elements and you go back on the other side of your section. As you're prepared, come to the table.